0: I am speaking to you from the cabinet room at 10 Downing Street. This morning, the British ambassador in Berlin handed the German government a final note stating that unless we heard from them by 11 o'clock, that they were prepared at once to withdraw their troops from Poland, a state of war would exist between us. I have to tell you now that no such undertaking has been received and that consequently this country is at war with Germany. Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The issue we're analyzing today is a defense of Neville Chamberlain. For those of you who don't know him, He was the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom from May 1937 until May 1940. The reason I'm presenting a defense of him is because he is often much maligned for the Munich Agreement of September 1938. That was an agreement between Britain and France on one side and Nazi Germany on the other side in an attempt to prevent World War II. Since World War II broke out 11 months later... A lot of people label Chamberlain as a failure and a fool for supposedly trusting Hitler. As you'll see in this podcast, those characterizations are unjust and untrue. That soundbite you heard at the opening of this podcast was Neville Chamberlain speaking over the BBC on September 3, 1939, advising his countrymen and the world that Britain was now at war with Germany. You can hear the sadness and heartbreak in his voice. Before we explore the Munich Conference of 1938, we need to provide some background. World War I ended at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month in 1918. It's why Veterans Day in the U.S. is November 11th. The Western Allies won. That means Britain, France, and the U.S. Russia had previously been an ally, but had dropped out of the war because of a little thing called the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. Most people have heard of the Treaty of Versailles, which was signed June 28, 1919. Amazingly, that date was exactly five years to the day from the shooting of Archduke Ferdinand by Gavrilo Princip in Sarajevo, which was the spark that ignited the powder keg of Europe 1914 and caused World War I. In addition to the Treaty of Versailles, there were also other treaties between the Allies and the former Central Powers. The Central Powers were Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire. The Treaty of Versailles primarily dealt with Germany. The Treaty of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, I know my French pronunciations are terrible, That treaty dealt with the breakup of the Austro-Hungarian Empire into several smaller states. The map of Europe looked completely different in 1919 as compared to before World War I. The Austria-Hungary Empire was gone. Austria was now a small independent country. Hungary was also a small independent country. New countries which had never existed existed came into being, including Yugoslavia and Czechoslovakia. Poland had disappeared for 123 years. In 1795, it had been swallowed up by its aggressive neighbors, Russia, Austria, and Prussia. And by the way, Prussia essentially became Germany in 1871. I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole, but you need to understand that after World War I, There were new countries which had never existed, and some countries were back which had not existed for over a century. The idea behind the creation of these countries was self-determination. American President Woodrow Wilson went to the Versailles Peace Conference in 1919 with the idea of championing democracy. Self-determination meant that people of a particular ethnic group should be able to govern themselves. Unfortunately, in Central and Eastern Europe, there are many ethnic groups which are mixed together. This is what led to problems which were exploited by Adolf Hitler in the 1930s. All right, so let's talk about Hitler. He becomes Chancellor of Germany on January 30, 1933. Within two years, he's consolidated his power and is absolute dictator. One of Hitler's main goals was to incorporate Ethnic Germans who were outside of Germany into the Reich. That's essentially the German term for nation. He first sets his sights on Austria, his homeland. That's right, Hitler was not actually German, he was Austrian. However, he moved to Germany before World War I and then fought for Germany in the Great War. It's a long and complicated history which I cannot go into in this podcast. However, although they share a same language and are both ethnically German, Austria and Germany were never part of the same country. It's kind of like the U.S. and Canada. When Austria lost its empire at the end of World War I, a lot of Austrians wanted their country to be joined with Germany. The Allies were not going to tolerate Germany being stronger after losing the Great War, so they refused to allow Austria to join Germany. In March 1938, Hitler achieves the Anschluss. That was the unification of Austria into the German Reich. Hitler sent in his army, and it was a bloodless conquest. This means that Austria no longer existed as a separate country, but was now a province of Germany. This added territory, resources, and almost 7 million people to the population of Germany. A lot of people in Austria wanted to join Germany in the spring of 1938, but there were others who wanted to remain an independent country. The pro anschluss people were a lot more vocal. There were huge crowds waving swastika flags, greeting the Wehrmacht, that's the German army, as it entered Vienna in March 1938. It also meant that, With the addition of the territory, which used to be Austria, Germany now surrounded Czechoslovakia on three sides. Let's talk about Czechoslovakia. As I explained earlier, that country did not exist until the end of World War I in 1918. It was formed from several provinces of what had been the Austria-Hungary Empire. This was a multi-ethnic country with Czechs, Slovaks, Hungarians, Poles, and Germans. What led to all the problems with Hitler was the fact that there were almost 3 million ethnic Germans in the mountainous western border regions of Czechoslovakia. This was an area known as the Sudetenland. After annexing Austria in March 1938, Hitler set his sights on annexing the Sudetenland. There was no accurate polling, However, it appears that a majority of the ethnic Germans wanted the Sudetenland to secede from Czechoslovakia and become a province of the German Reich. One of the main reasons the Sudetenland Germans wanted to join Germany was because they were an ethnic minority in Czechoslovakia. See, in the days of the Austria Hungary Empire, they were part of the two ruling classes the Germans and the Hungarians. Now, they were a minority in a country dominated by the Czechs and the Slovaks, and they were unhappy about this turn of events. During the summer of 1938, Hitler kept demanding that the Sudetenland be handed over to Germany. He threatened that if he did not get the Sudetenland peaceably, then he would take it by force. The military of Germany had plans of conquest for all of their neighbors, They did not have to wait for the last minute to devise battle plans. They planned ahead. They codenamed these military plans by color. Case Yellow was the military plan for conquering France. Case White was the strategy for conquering Poland. And Case Green was the plan for invading and conquering Czechoslovakia. When Case Green was prepared, Austria was not part of Germany... And so the strategy entailed invading from the west and the north of Czechoslovakia, which bordered Germany. However, once Austria was added as a province of Germany, the Czechs were surrounded on three sides because Austria was to Czechoslovakia south. In short, Case Green became much easier. To no surprise, the Czechs told Hitler throughout the summer of 1938 that they would not give him a large chunk of their country. By September 1938, tensions were at a boiling point. It was obvious that Hitler was going to invade any day. This would precipitate a Second World War because France had a treaty with Czechoslovakia to defend that country if it was attacked. In short, if Germany invaded Czechoslovakia, France would declare war on Germany. Britain did not have a treaty with Czechoslovakia, which required Britain to go to war if Czechoslovakia was invaded. However, Britain and France had been extremely close allies in World War I and continued to cooperate with each other in the 1920s and 30s to try to keep the peace. Although it was not obligated by treaty to do so, if war broke out between Germany on one side and France and Czechoslovakia on the other side, there was little doubt that Britain would join the war on the side of the Allies. Now it's time to introduce the subject of this podcast, Neville Chamberlain. As I told you earlier, he became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom in May 1937. He took over a country that was in the grips of the Great Depression. As he tried to improve the domestic situation in Britain, he always had an eye on the international realm and the prospects of a Second World War. So why was Chamberlain worried about a second world war when he became prime minister? It's because Europe was a mess. Spain was in the midst of a brutal civil war which started in 1936 and would not end until 1939 with a victory by the fascist regime of Francisco Franco. Benito Mussolini, who liked to be called Il Duce, was the dictator of Italy. By the way, that term Il Duce is just Italian for the leader, just like the Fuhrer is German for the leader. The term fascist is now used to describe any totalitarian regime that exalts nation, and usually race, above the individual. Originally, that term just meant Mussolini's political party, the fascisti. Where did Mussolini come up with that name? In ancient Rome, there was an emblem that signified a magistrate had power, called the Fasces, It's spelled F-A-S-C-E-S. It was a bundle of rods with an axe in the center. Mussolini liked that image and named his party after it. Mussolini was dreaming of creating a new empire in the 1930s. In October 1935, he invaded Abyssinia, a country we now call Ethiopia. Mussolini was a threat to world peace. But these problems in Spain and Italy paled in comparison to the threat of a rearming Germany. Under the terms of the Versailles Treaty, Germany had been stripped of most of its military might. Germany was banned from having an air force and banned from having submarines. The German army was limited to 100,000 soldiers. Once Hitler took over, Germany began to rearm. They started building up their navy, including submarines. They greatly increased the Wehrmacht, the German army. Hitler created a new air force called the Luftwaffe. The Luftwaffe was led by a World War I flying ace, who was the number two man in Germany, Hermann Goering. Because of these conditions, a lot of people thought that another world war was inevitable. Neville Chamberlain thought, or at least hoped, that he could avoid a second world war. Which brings us to the Munich Conference. There were actually three meetings between Chamberlain and Hitler in September 1938. The first meeting occurred when Chamberlain had the British Foreign Service contact their counterparts in the Nazi regime about a face-to-face meeting in Berchtesgaden, That was Hitler's mountain retreat in the Bavarian Alps. This occurred September 16, 1938. In their first meeting, Chamberlain agreed with Hitler that the Sudeten Germans should be allowed to join the German Reich if they wished to. Chamberlain suggested a plebiscite in the Sudetenland on this issue. Chamberlain then returned to Britain and communicated with his French counterpart, Édouard Daladier. Daladier was the Prime Minister of France from April 10, 1938 through March 21, 1940. Chamberlain convinced Deladier that Czechoslovakia would have to give the Sudeten land to Germany. Although Deladier claimed that he did not want to abandon the Czechs, he realized that it was the only practical solution. In fact, by September 1938, the French had already privately come to the conclusion that Czechoslovakia could not be saved if Germany invaded. The second meeting between Chamberlain and Hitler occurred a week later at Gotisburg, Germany. At that second meeting, Hitler made some additional demands. Besides demanding the Sudetenland become part of Germany, Hitler said that it had to be transferred immediately, and also that minorities within Czechoslovakia, like ethnic Poles and Hungarians, should have the opportunity to opt out of Czechoslovakia and join Poland and Hungary. We now know that Hitler was doing this because he was actually hoping for war instead of being given the Sudetenland like he had been asking for. A lunatic like Hitler thought that war was a good thing. Because of these additional demands, there was no settlement at that second meeting in Godesburg. All seemed to be lost, and a second world war seemed very likely at that point. Then Chamberlain thought of a new tactic. Since Hitler was not only allied with Mussolini, he actually was genuinely fond of Mussolini. Chamberlain thought that was a back-channel way to get to Hitler. I know it's hard to think of a monster like Adolf Hitler actually having actual friends, but in the 1920s, when Hitler was out of power, he looked up to Mussolini, who had taken over Italy in 1922. Anyway... Chamberlain had his foreign office contact their counterparts in Rome and asked Mussolini if he could speak with Hitler about having a four-party conference in Germany. The four parties would be Britain, Germany, France, and Italy. And as you will notice, Czechoslovakia was not invited. Chamberlain did not hear from the Italians or the Germans, and time was running out. So he went to give a speech to Parliament to explain to them that Britain was most likely going to be at war with Germany within a few days. Remarkably, while he was speaking to Parliament, Chamberlain was handed a note from his ambassador in Berlin that Hitler had agreed to the four-party conference and that it would be held in Munich the next day, September 29. The conference in Munich began after lunch and went until 2 a.m. the next morning when agreement was finally reached and signed by the leaders of Germany, Britain, France, and Italy. Pursuant to this agreement, the Sudetenland would be transferred from Czechoslovakia to Germany. If the Czechoslovaks did not agree, they were to be left on their own to face the imminent German invasion. Although obviously extremely unhappy with this agreement and feeling betrayed, Czechoslovakia agreed to give up the Sudetenland to Germany. On the morning of September 30, while eating breakfast, Chamberlain had an idea for a declaration between only Britain and Germany. He had it typed up and met again with Hitler before leaving Munich. This is the full text of that declaration. We, the German Führer and Chancellor, and the British Prime Minister, have had a further meeting today, and are agreed in recognizing that the question of Anglo-German relations is of the first importance for the two countries and for Europe. We regard the agreement signed last night and the Anglo-German naval agreement as symbolic of the desire of our two peoples never to go to war with one another again. We are resolved that the method of consultation shall be the method adopted to deal with any other questions that may concern our two countries, and we are determined to continue our efforts to remove possible sources of difference and thus contribute to assure the peace of Europe. It was signed by Hitler and Chamberlain. Okay, Chamberlain flies home to London and is met with enthusiastic crowds cheering him for saving the peace. On the way from the airport to 10 Downing Street, the streets are lined with thousands of people cheering Chamberlain. The is greeted in Paris with the same enthusiastic reception and relief that World War II was not beginning within a few days. So, what was the result of the Munich Agreement? Unfortunately, it did not avoid World War II. However, it did prevent it for 11 months. After the Sudetenland was transferred to German jurisdiction, Poland and Hungary demanded chunks of Czechoslovakia, which had Polish or Hungarian populations. Those territories were transferred to Poland and Hungary in November 1938. So what happens to the remainder of Czechoslovakia? Hitler promised that if he received the Sudetenland, he would not touch the rest of Czechoslovakia. As you can guess, Hitler did not keep his promise. In March 1939, the part of the country that was primarily Slovakian declared its independence as the First Slovak Republic. This was simply a Nazi puppet state which had been engineered by Hitler and his henchmen. A few days after the declaration of the First Slovak Republic, Hitler announced that the Protectorate of Bohemia and Moravia. This was the remaining portion of Czechoslovakia. And where did he make this declaration on March 16, 1939? From Prague Castle. Theoretically, what was left of the Czech lands was an independent country under the protection of Nazi Germany. In reality, Czechoslovakia had ceased to exist and was occupied by the Wehrmacht. After the absorption of the remainder of Czechoslovakia in March 1939, Hitler turned his eyes towards his next target, Poland. As I told you earlier, Poland had ceased to exist for 123 years, but was reconstituted in 1918 at the end of World War I. In its new borders, Poland was given access to the Baltic Sea because the Allies believed that a country needed access to open oceans for trade. This area was known as the Polish Corridor and was land that had previously belonged to Germany, at least before 1918. As a result of the Polish Corridor, a part of Germany known as East Prussia was physically cut off from the rest of Germany. So, in 1939, Hitler started his usual demands that the areas of Poland consisting of ethnic Germans, which was primarily around the city of Danzig, be handed over to Germany. Although Poland's military was incredibly obsolete, with World War I vintage biplanes and a lack of tanks, Poland told Hitler to drop dead. France and Britain told Hitler that there would be no negotiations on this issue and announced that they would guarantee Poland's security, meaning that if Germany invaded Poland, France and Britain would declare war on Germany. Early in the morning on September 1, 1939, the Germans set into operation Case White, the invasion of Poland. Two days later, on September 3, 1939, both Britain and France declared war on Germany. At the beginning of this podcast, you heard Neville Chamberlain's announcement over the BBC about this declaration of war. So, was Neville Chamberlain a naive fool to give in to Hitler at the Munich Conference in September 1938? Unfortunately, most people hold this view. Now, the primary reason Chamberlain is portrayed this way was because Winston Churchill wrote a six-volume set of books On World War II. These books are very good and are relied on by many historians. To no surprise, Churchill is a hero in these books. Overall, I like the way that he conducted World War II, but Churchill made a lot of mistakes also. In Churchill's writings, his predecessor as Prime Minister, Neville Chamberlain, was an innocent inexperienced man who was completely duped by Hitler, but then, fortunately for the world, Churchill came along to save the day. An analysis of Chamberlain's motives, actions, and results show that he was not a naive fool and that he actually did the right thing. First, let's look at Chamberlain's motives. He was too old to fight in World War I, but he did live through it and had friends and relatives who fought in the war. That war dragged on for four years, killing approximately 20 million people, and half of those deaths were civilians. Britain had been on the winning side of World War I, yet the war almost destroyed the country. Before World War I, Britain had been the biggest creditor nation in the world. After the Great War, Britain was heavily in debt. Nobody in the 1920s and 30s in Britain thought that World War I had been a good idea. For these reasons, public opinion was overwhelmingly against going to war against Germany in September 1938. This is an important fact in a democracy. Hitler was a dictator and could do what he wanted, but Chamberlain actually had to listen to the public. It's hard to take a democracy into a war that the public is against. See the U.S. in Vietnam, how things turn out when the public is not supporting a war. Not only was Chamberlain and the populace of the U.K. motivated by looking at the horrors of World War I, They were also looking at the horrors of a possible Second World War. The last time England had been invaded was in 1066. It's great being an island. The English Channel had protected Britain from tremendous threats from so many forces, including Napoleon. But now it's the middle of the 20th century and there is a new threat. Bombers. Stanley Baldwin was the Prime Minister of Britain on three occasions in the 20s and 30s. In a speech he gave in 1932, Baldwin was advising the British Parliament about the dangers of modern air forces. He uttered the phrase that became famous, The bomber will always get through. Baldwin's point was that no matter what air defenses a country constructed, Some of the enemy planes might be stopped, but some of the bombers would get through. And those bombers would destroy a country's cities. Baldwin concluded that future wars would require a country to, quote, kill more women and children more quickly than the enemy if you want to save yourselves, close quotes. And this wasn't just a theoretical argument. In 1938, when Chamberlain was trying to prevent World War II, this was just a year over from the bombing of Guernica. In the Spanish Civil War, the Nazis and the Italians were helping the fascist forces. On April 26, 1937, at the request of Spanish fascist leader Francisco Franco, the German Luftwaffe's Condor Legion and the fascist Italian, Aviazione Legionaria destroyed Guernica. The bombing of Guernica showed what a modern air force could do to a city and civilians. You've probably seen the famous painting by Pablo Picasso expressing his angst at the destruction of Guernica. Picasso's work, simply entitled Guernica, was displayed at Republican Spain's pavilion during the 1937 World's Fair in Paris. See, throughout its history, Britain could get involved in wars and know that its homeland would be safe. They might lose soldiers and sailors, but civilians would essentially be safe. Not anymore. Everybody understood that in the next war, Britain would be bombed. And although this did not occur in Europe in World War II, there was great fear of gas bombs. Poison gas was used extensively in World War I. People assumed that poison gas would be used in World War II. There was a movie that came out in 1936 called Things to Come. There were scenes in that movie of another world war showing poison gas being dropped on the British countryside. At that time, approximately one-fifth of the United Kingdom's population was located in Greater London, and that area was certainly reachable by German bombers. The fear of massive gas attacks from the air was real in 1938. Civilians, including little kids, already had gas masks ready to be put on. Were Chamberlain's fears for his country justified? Of course. Look what actually happened to Britain in World War II. Before World War II, they had the British Empire. They were a world power. After World War II, the British Empire was finished. It took a while, but the empire was dismantled. By the way, I'm not saying this is a bad thing. On the contrary, I think it was a good thing that all of those countries, like India got their independence. I'm just pointing out that if you were the Prime Minister of Britain in 1938 and somebody was telling you that even if you win the coming war, you will lose your empire, your country will be broke, and your country will never be a world power again. And oh, by the way, you will suffer more than 40,000 civilian deaths as a result of the Luftwaffe bombing London. So, if you were the British Prime Minister in 1938, would you be eager to engage in such a war? Don't we all want a leader at such a time who would try to avoid the biggest cataclysm that ever occurred on this planet? World War II caused the deaths of approximately 60 million people worldwide. And in case you were thinking that the war had already begun in 1937 in Asia, as horrendous as that was, that war was limited to Japan versus China. Japan started expanding the war in Asia once France and the Netherlands had fallen and Britain was barely hanging on against Germany. This meant that the Asian colonies of Britain, France, and the Netherlands were easy pickings for the Japanese. If the war had not occurred in Europe, would Japan have taken on those European colonial powers when they had their hands full in China? Probably not. So, the common narrative is that Neville Chamberlain was a naive person who was completely duped by the wily Adolf Hitler. Not true. Chamberlain understood what Hitler was. He spoke nicely about him in public because he was trying to work out a deal with him. But in private, he described Hitler as a dog and a gangster, and said that Hitler was half mad. But sometimes, democracies have to deal with people like this. The U.S. and Britain dealt with Stalin as an ally starting in 1941. The U.S. had to deal with despicable Soviet regimes throughout the history of the Cold War... Because we had to. You can't just ignore a world power. Richard Nixon is universally praised for opening up relations with China in 1972 by traveling to Beijing and meeting with Chairman Mao. Mao Zedong was responsible for millions of deaths. His Great Leap Forward, which had aimed to rapidly transform China's economy from agrarian to industrial, led to the deadliest famine in history and the deaths of somewhere between 15 and 55 million people between 1958 and 1962. But Nixon did the right thing in meeting with Mao. It was ridiculous to ignore communist China. The U.S. had to have relations with China and the USSR and negotiate with both of those terrible regimes. So let's look at another issue. Was it shameful for the British and French to sell out Czechoslovakia to Hitler? Yes. However, we have to consider some of these points. Number one, countries do what is in their best interest. Strong countries don't go to war to protect weaker countries. They just don't. Britain did not have a treaty with Czechoslovakia, and was not obligated to defend that country. And the only reason France had a mutual defense treaty with Czechoslovakia was because it was in France's best interest. France wanted to have Germany encircled and have to face a war in the East as well as the West. Point number two, I'm an American, but I laugh when my fellow Americans think that it was a disgrace that Britain and France sold out Czechoslovakia in 1938. The U.S. did the same exact thing to the same country 30 years later. In 1968, the Czechs were trying to break away from the Soviet Union. This was at a time when all of Eastern Europe were communist puppet states dominated by the Soviets. In an event called the Prague Spring, the Czechs held mass protests in the hope democratic reforms. It was crushed by the Red Army. Did the U.S. intercede to help Czechoslovakia become free and independent? No, because we did not want to have World War III with the USSR. This also had happened 12 years earlier. In 1956, Hungary had an armed revolt against the Soviet overlords, and they begged for help from the West. Again, The U.S. did not militarily aid Hungary because we did not think World War III was worth it. By the way, the U.S. never declared war on Germany, even when France had fallen and Britain was on its knees. Two of our closest allies being crushed by the Nazis. The U.S. never tried to stop Hitler until he declared war on us first, just after Pearl Harbor. Point number three, both France and Britain had come to the conclusion that even if they went to war with Germany in September 1938, it would not save Czechoslovakia. The Germans would have overrun Czechoslovakia easily within weeks. Both the French and British believed that coming to the aid of the Czechs meant a long war with Germany and then rebuilding Czechoslovakia after the war was concluded. Point number four, the British did not want to risk possible complete ruin over the Sudetenland, which a large portion of the British public thought maybe should be transferred to Germany. Applying President Woodrow Wilson's self-determination rules, it appeared that a vast majority of people in the Sudetenland wished to join Germany. Point number five, there's a double standard here. Churchill and other people who criticized Chamberlain for selling out Czechoslovakia had no problems with the British government offering Germany colonies in Africa or Asia to appease Hitler. This idea had been offered to Hitler, but he refused. Selling out Africans or Asians would be okay. But turning your back on fellow Europeans was uncool. A complete double standard. So, should Britain and France have gone to war against Germany in the fall of 1938? Winston Churchill certainly thought so. The first argument in favor of war in 1938, put forth by people like Churchill, was that Czechoslovakia had a fairly modern military, and they had a lot of defensive fortifications in the mountainous regions bordering Germany. It's true that, for a small country, they had a decent military, but nothing compared to the German war machine. And where were those fortifications? They were in the Sudetenland. In a war with Germany, could the Czechs rely that the ethnic Germans in that region would fight against the Wehrmacht, or would they be assisting the invading Nazis? Another argument which has been presented for going to war with Germany in the fall of 1938 is that supposedly some of the German generals were willing to overthrow Hitler and arrest him, but only if Britain and France declared war. I've always called BS on this argument. If this cabal of German generals was serious, they could have done so before the Munich conference. Public opinion in Germany was against an invasion of Czechoslovakia. This was evidenced by the thousands of people who cheered Chamberlain on his arrival in Munich, seeing him as the man who could keep the peace. And this argument by the supposed good generals who wanted to arrest Hitler is backwards. If France and Britain declared war on Germany in 1938, you have to believe that the population would have rallied around Hitler and his regime. No matter how unpopular a leader is, the public rallies around their leader in times of war. And in this case, although it seems remarkable to us, Hitler was incredibly popular with the German people. People like Churchill, who argue that Chamberlain and Britain should have gone to war against Hitler in the fall of 1938, ignore that Britain was in a much better position to fight the Nazis in 1939 than they would have been in 1938. I'll explain this in detail later. Also, the Churchill side who favored war in 1938 seemed to forget that Britain came close to losing World War II when the war finally came in 1939. At the start of World War II, Britain imported 70% of its food. Once the war started, the U-boats were starving Britain of not only food, but a lot of raw materials it needed to survive. Britain was lucky to be on the winning side in World War II. Things worked out for the United Kingdom because of two reasons. The first was Hitler foolishly invading the Soviet Union on June 22, 1941. This tied up the vast majority of the German military and resources for the rest of the war. The second reason that Britain ended up on the winning side was that the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor on December 7, 1941, and the U.S. joined World War II. The two main reasons the Allies defeated the Axis powers were, number one, the willingness of the Soviets to sacrifice approximately 26 million people dying to defeat the Nazis, and number two, the incredible industrial output of the United States would supplied the Allies with all the tools needed for victory. The point being, everything went right for the UK in World War II, and they still barely survived, How foolish were the people pressing for war in 1938 when there was still a chance, maybe not a great chance, but at least a decent chance, of avoid a second world war at that time? Okay, other than going to war with Germany in the fall of 1938, or making a deal with Hitler at the Munich Conference to give Germany the Sudetenland, was there another viable alternative? Okay, Winston Churchill was a sidelined politician in 1938, but he still had a large voice. In 1938, he argued for a grand alliance. That was his term. After the war, Churchill made this argument that a grand alliance in 1938 was the solution. This is one of the reasons why Chamberlain gets such a bad rep. Chamberlain dies in November 1940, and so was not available to defend himself after the war when Winston Churchill wrote some of the definitive histories on World War II, and, not surprisingly, those books written by Churchill make Chamberlain look like a fool and Churchill a genius. So what was the supposed Grand Alliance? It would be comprised of some small countries like Czechoslovakia, but mostly involving four major powers— Britain, France, the U.S., and the Soviet Union. This four-power grand alliance was totally unrealistic. The United States was in complete isolationist mode throughout the 1930s. The U.S. had not even joined the League of Nations, even though it was the brainchild of American President Woodrow Wilson. The U.S. passed Neutrality Acts in 1935 and 1937, forbidding the U.S. from getting involved in any foreign wars. Churchill and his friends ignore this fact. Okay, if they couldn't get the U.S., could Britain and France have aligned with the Soviet Union? It amazes me that Churchill and his supporters make this argument for several reasons. Number one, the people who mocked Chamberlain say that he was a fool for supposedly trusting Hitler. What makes them think they could trust Joseph Stalin? Hitler is probably the worst person who ever walked the face of the earth. But Stalin is a close second. By 1938, Stalin was already responsible for approximately 6 million or more deaths of non-combatants in his own country due to starvation, incarceration, or simply being shot. But the people who argue in favor of the Grand Alliance in 1938 feel that this was a trustworthy person and we can rely on Stalin's word. You don't have to take my view on Stalin's reliability. We saw how he acted as our ally in World War II when at the end of the war, he made lots of promises about Eastern Europe and broke every one of them. He turned all of those Eastern European countries into communist puppet states under the control of the Soviet Union. Fun fact, at a meeting in February 1945, Churchill told his cabinet that the British could trust Joseph Stalin. Yes, he said that. So who was the fool? Okay, point number two, why Britain and France could not rely on the USSR. Stalin would not make a deal with Britain and France when he could get a much better deal from Hitler. This occurred the following summer with the Molotov-Rippentrop Pact, whereby the Nazis and the Soviets agreed to split Poland in half. And, as a bonus, Stalin would also have a free hand in swallowing up the Baltic states of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Point number three against an alliance with Stalin. The USSR did not seem like a strong ally or a world power in 1938. It's hard to believe when we look back at the times of the Cold War. But in the 1930s, the Soviet Union was a mess. I don't have time to get into all the details, but throughout that decade, Stalin enacted the Great Purges, whereby he executed most of the officers of the Red Army. Would the Soviets have been good allies to stand up to the Nazi war machine in 1938? Definitely not. We could see this by how the Red Army performed in late 1939 when Stalin invaded Finland. The Soviets eventually won that war, but it took the Red Army three and a half months to conquer a tiny country of about three and a half million people, compared to the Soviet population at that time of over 179 million people. Point number four against an alliance with Stalin. Even if Joseph Stalin would be a reliable and practical ally in 1938, how would the Red Army get to Czechoslovakia or even get to Germany? Look at a map from Europe in 1938. The Red Army would have to go through either Poland or Romania, and both of those countries had made it clear that they would not allow the Red Army to march through their lands. As both Poland and Romania learned in 1945, once the Red Army marched in, they were there to stay. And One other problem with Churchill's Grand Alliance Scheme of 1938. Okay, as already discussed, Britain could not rely on the Soviet Union and the United States was definitely going to remain isolated. So they would just be stuck with France. Was France a good partner in 1938? France was wracked with political instability throughout the 1930s. There were great tensions between right-wing and left-wing extremists in France. And how was France militarily at that time? France had been devastated in World War I. Although they were on the winning side, France suffered greatly in the Great War. Most of the fighting on the Western Front was done in French territory. France prepared for a possible second war by thinking about what happened in the First World War. This led to completely defensive thinking. As a result, the French spent the vast majority of its defense budgets on the Maginot Line. The Maginot Line was a series of fixed fortifications on the border between France and Germany. It was an amazing feat of engineering, but it was all geared towards the defensive. This was seen when war finally broke out in September 1939 when Germany invaded Poland. The French could not or would not go on the offensive against Germany, even though the vast majority of German forces were in Poland and were not available to defend against the French attack. The French essentially did nothing from the outbreak of World War II in September 1939 until the Germans invaded France on May 10, 1940. And what happened when the Germans invaded? This world power lasted only six weeks and signed the Armistice Agreement with Hitler on June 22, 1940. So when you think about all of these factors, Churchill's proposed Grand Alliance of 1938 completely falls apart. The U.S. was never going to join. The Soviet Union most likely would not have joined and would have been a dubious partner even if Stalin had provided lip service. And we see how France turned out as an ally. So, what was Chamberlain to do at this moment of crisis? Considering his options, Chamberlain made the right choice in September 1938. If you were in his position and you thought that there was at least a decent chance, maybe 50 50, that you could avoid the horrors of a second and larger world war, wouldn't you take that chance? Well, that's what he did. And this was very groundbreaking. Chamberlain invented shuttle diplomacy. We're now used to world leaders meeting and discussing issues. That's not the way it was before 1938. Ambassadors and foreign secretaries spoke to one another, but not the actual leaders of countries. Chamberlain himself came up with this idea of flying to Germany and meeting Hitler face-to-face to to try to avoid a world catastrophe. He had never flown in an airplane before. And this is not like today with the comforts of modern aircraft. This was a 69-year-old man flying in an unpressurized cabin, which was not heated and incredibly bumpy and he made three separate trips to Germany to try to save the entire world from a Second World War. This was very forward-thinking. Chamberlain was under no illusions as to what Hitler was. When he returned to London from the Munich Conference, he told his advisors, Gentlemen, prepare for war. That's right, contrary to the optimistic front he presented to the public, he understood that there was a good chance that they would have to fight the Nazis. And as I told you earlier, war did come 11 months later. On September 1, 1939, the Nazis invaded Poland, and two days later, Britain and France declared war on Germany. Chamberlain's policy was not peace at all costs. When it was clear that no negotiations could preserve the peace, in 1939... Britain and France gave their assurance to Poland and then declared war on Germany when Hitler invaded. Britain and France. They are the only ones to stand up to Hitler, and this was done with Chamberlain as prime minister. So we know that Chamberlain was not able to completely avoid World War II. But was Britain in a better position to defend itself in September 1939 as compared to September 1938? The answer is definitely yes. When Britain went to war in 1939, it was in a much better position than had it gone to war a year earlier. Here are the reasons. Number one, Britain had the support of the Commonwealth nations. Winston Churchill loves to claim that after the fall of France in the summer of 1940, Britain stood alone against the Nazi war machine. That's not true. It was the British Empire with all of its colonies as well as the assistance of its dominions. Let me explain. In World War I, when Britain declared war on Germany in 1914, it was on behalf of the entire British Empire, which included the dominions of the British Empire, meaning Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa. But things changed between the wars. In 1931, the Statute of Westminster recognized these dominions as independent countries within the British Empire equal in status to the United Kingdom. Those countries were Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, Ireland, and Newfoundland. I know what you're thinking, Newfoundland? Newfoundland? Well, Newfoundland was still independent. It did not join Canada until 1949. In 1938, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and South Africa made it very clear to the British government that they did not want to go to war against Germany over the Sudetenland. The public opinion of those four countries changed drastically in the spring of 1939 when Hitler broke his promise and swallowed up the rest of Czechoslovakia. As a result, when Britain went to war with Germany in 1939, it had the assistance of Canada, Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand, which all independently declared war on Germany. The resources of those four countries greatly helped Britain survive. Point number two. Chamberlain's actions united the UK behind going to war against Germany. The British people were very against a war against Germany in September 1938. This was made clear by the thousands of people who welcomed Chamberlain back from Munich when he arrived in London, as well as the thousands of letters and telegrams thanking him for keeping the peace. As a side note, he did not receive thank yous from just people in the U.K., A lot of the thank yous he received were from Belgium and the Netherlands. For the same reasons that Canada, Australia, South Africa, and New Zealand supported the war in 1939, so did the people of the UK. Hitler swallowing up the rest of Czechoslovakia convinced the citizens of the UK that they would have to fight Hitler. Public opinion is not a small thing in a democracy. It's much easier to be successful in a war that is backed by the citizens. Again, look at the U.S. in World War II as compared to Vietnam. Point number three, why Chamberlain buying Britain those 11 months of peace helped win World War II. He increased the size of the British Army. In May 1939, under the Chamberlain government, conscription, meaning the draft, began requiring single men between 20 and 22 to undertake six months' military training. A much more extensive conscription act went to effect on September 3, 1939, the date Britain declared war in Germany. In 1938, the British Army consisted of approximately 385,000 soldiers. When war broke out in September 1939, that number had been increased to almost 900,000. Point number four, why the Munich Agreement was good in the long run, fighter planes. Although some in the British government in the mid to late 1930s thought that the Royal Air Force should focus on bombers, Chamberlain focused on fighter planes. In the early 1930s, the Royal Air Force still had biplanes, not much different than World War I. However, In 1935, the Hawker Company invented the Hurricane, and in 1936, the Vickers Company invented the Spitfire. These were two of the best fighter planes of World War II. Chamberlain wanted to spend Britain's limited resources on fighter planes, which could provide an effective aerial shield. The first RAF unit to be equipped with the hurricanes and spitfires occurred in late 1937. Production of both of those fighters went into high gear in 1938. By the time the war was declared in September 1939, the RAF had approximately 500 hurricanes and 300 spitfires. France fell to the Nazis in June 1940. Then came the Battle of Britain, when the German Luftwaffe tried to take control of the air over Great Britain and the English Channel. Fortunately for humanity, the Luftwaffe failed. During the Battle of Britain, primarily between July and September 1940, 19 squadrons of Spitfires, with 372 aircraft at the peak on August 30th, And 33 squadrons of Hurricanes with 709 aircraft on August 30th fought the Luftwaffe from airports throughout southern England. The fifth point why the extra 11 months of peace bought by the Munich Agreement helped win World War II radar. There are many reasons that the Luftwaffe lost the Battle of Britain. One is the heroics of the RAF pilots. Another is that the British had great fighter planes, the Hurricanes and Spitfires, and more importantly, that they had sufficient numbers of those fighters. But possibly the biggest reason they won the Battle of Britain was radar. The British did not have the resources to have fighter planes constantly in the air searching for incoming Luftwaffe bombers. However, with radar, they could spot the incoming German planes and scramble the RAF fighters to intercept them. Radar was a new thing in the mid-1930s. It was still being perfected in 1936 and 1937. Chamberlain was a proponent of a defensive radar system, which was installed between 1937 and 1939. This system was called Chain Home. It wasn't ready to take on the Luftwaffe, in 1938. But by September 1939, there were 21 operational chain home stations. And after the Battle of France in 1940, when Hitler turned his attention to the UK in the summer of 1940, the chain home network had been expanded to cover all of the coasts of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. As some historians have phrased it, Chamberlain did not win World War II, but he prevented the U.K. from losing the Battle of Britain in 1940 by making sure that Britain had enough fighter planes and an adequate radar system. To sum it up, anybody who was in Neville Chamberlain's position in 1938 and did not do everything possible to avoid a world war would be irresponsible. Chamberlain tried to avoid the war. He failed, but at least he tried. And even though he didn't avoid World War II entirely, his actions ensured that Britain did not lose the war during the Battle of Britain. Britain, remaining in the war throughout 1940 and into 1941, allowed for an eventual Allies' victory. Instead of being ridiculed, he should be praised. Well, that's it for today. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. If you are listening on a podcast app like Spotify, which allows for ratings, I would love a five-star rating. Please tell your friends, relatives, coworkers. Word of mouth is greatly appreciated. Check out my website, historyanalyzed.com, where you will find links to my podcast episodes as well as fun history items like this date in history, book recommendations, historical sound bites, and links to supporting historical evidence. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.